that. Very nice. I was going to, yeah. Um, so if you have your Bibles today, it is Christmas season. We all know that, right? So I'm going to, uh, to do something. Last week we looked at the incarnation. Today we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah 9, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 7. And this, of course, I'm sure all of you in some context or another have heard of this passage before, heard something about it, at least you've read or heard someone quote it, I guess. But Isaiah 9 is uh, one of, you know, it's hard. Christmas, you know, Christmas, preaching about Christmas or preaching around Christmas is hard because uh, the stories of Christ become so cliche and everyone's heard them a thousand times. You know, if you're 30 years old, you've been in church for 30 years, you probably heard 30 sermons around Christmas season about these things. And so, um, you know, which is not a bad thing because it's, it's true that the, the things about Christ we have in Scripture and they're important. But it is to say, you know, with a lot of these things, it's almost like we would be benefited if, if we stepped away from all of the things that we've ever heard in our lives and come to, come to this fresh with, with eyes that have never seen these things in a sense. And so um, Isaiah 9 to me, is actually, it's a, it's a very rich passage. There's a lot going on in it. It's not just, uh, you know, towards the end, this is where you're going to hear, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And this is quoted, of course, in the New Testament. Um, but let's go ahead and read Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, after we pray, after we pray, and then we'll read it. Father, we come before you now, and we pray that you would help us to, help us to love your son, help us to love the great the great mystery of the incarnation that Christ took on flesh, that the second person in the Trinity took on flesh, that he who has no beginning, he who uh, through whom all things have been made took on flesh and, 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 and dwelt among us. And as we'll see today, he was given for us, Lord. So we praise you for this. Help us though, Lord, help us now to see this in a way that pleases you, help us to see this in a, in a way that drives us to love you, drives us to worship you, drives us to imitate Christ in our lives. Father, we cannot do this without you, so give us much grace right now. Give us your Holy Spirit. We pray for your Holy Spirit, Lord. Thank you for being our Father. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've given us your Son, and now help us, Lord. Help us to, to better love you and to love you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, um, verse 1 of chapter 9 of Isaiah. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with uh, contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as, with, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, 
the backdrop of all of this, and if you've ever read the prophets, any of the prophets, really, there's a similar pattern in all of them. It, it's, it's the prophet rises up and he proclaims judgment and destruction and God's coming and you need to turn and you need to turn from your sins now. And, and then there's always these glimmers of hope embedded within those destruction narratives, destruction prophecies. And, and the same thing is going on here. So if you look in chapter eight, actually, of Isaiah, let's say uh, starting in verse Really, well, the whole chapter, but um, if you go through this chapter, what you're seeing is this. You're seeing a land that is dark, that is, that, that is perverse. You're seeing uh, adultery, witchcraft, greed, false prophets. You're seeing a lot of the same things that you see in America today. You look around, there's death. Babies are being murdered. You know, murders are happening in every city. People are stealing crosses from church. You know, you name it, right? There's destruction. There's, there's, there's devastation. And here's the thing, Isaiah is prophesying this, and right in this chapter, Isaiah is telling them that Assyria is going to come and burn down houses, take captives, destroy Israel. And you're hearing this, and you're like, man, we're, 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 we're done, you know? I mean, there's no hope. There's really no hope. There's, there, I mean, what do we do? Well, what they do now is they look to Isaiah for a word from God. They're saying, okay, this is the way things are. You look around and, and we can, I, I think we can relate. You know, you look around our country today, it's not getting better. We know that. Um, now, even in a sense, maybe long-term it will, you know, if you're a post mill or something like that, right? You might think that everything will eventually get better. But right now it looks like things are getting more bleak. But what happens, and same thing with here, right? But what happens is, is whenever Isaiah begins to speak, you look at verse 22 of chapter 8. It says, then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. And that's like this, that's, that's the summary of this, really the first eight chapters with few exceptions of Isaiah. It's a very dark picture. But then in verse 1, all of a sudden it's like, First of all, you, you have the word but there, B-U-T, you know, where he's saying, okay, there's a transition here, but something's going to happen. Despite all the darkness, despite all the gloom, despite all the chaos, the witchcraft, again, the adultery, the greed, the false prophets, all of that, despite all of that, now you have but. But, in verse 1, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Right? That's good. Well, who was in anguish? We were. Now, not America. In this sense, it was Israel, right? Israel's in anguish. But in the larger context, yes, God's people. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt because of their evil, because of their sin. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Where does Christ come from? Where does Christ settle in? Galilee, right? Now, Isaiah was written about 600 years before Christ stepped foot on earth. And you read, in fact, there's been, you know, people throughout church history that have called Isaiah the gospel of Isaiah. They say the, the, there's the five gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Isaiah, because there's so much of the gospel that's preached in Isaiah 600 years before Christ came to earth. This is one of those passages. So 600 years before Christ comes to earth, you, you have here this glimmer of hope. And now we on the other side of the cross have a lot more insight to this than they would have, right? And they're, but they're looking at it and they're saying, they're hearing Isaiah say this and they're saying, okay, all right. So you're saying these lands that were treated with contempt and destruction and they were destroyed because of their sin. Later on, God is going to make it glorious. That's the promise, right? God is going to make this area glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's the exact location where Christ comes out of, the exact location. 
All right, so now we're seeing something. But again, now just kind of walk through this because we don't know the whole story yet. You do because we read it, right? But in, 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 in their minds, when they're getting this, they're saying, okay, well, well, what else, right? And then verse two, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Now, turn with me to Matthew chapter four. Matthew chapter four, verse 16. And look what you have. Let's start in verse 12. Now, my heading here says Jesus begins his ministry. Your heading might say something similar above verse 12. It might not. That was not in the original manuscripts, of course. But here's the thing in verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. We just read about that, right? And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. What do you know, right? That's the exact place that we just read about. 600 years before this. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death upon them, a light dawned. Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means it's here. It's right now. It's, it's before you. So let's go back to Isaiah. This is how, you know, again, you, well, not again. I don't think we've ever said it here. We talked about it in the theology classes. But, you know, we interpret the Old Testament in light of what the New Testament says about the Old Testament. So the New Testament over here is telling us what this passage is all about. And even in those days, there would have been people who recognized, okay, there's something. You know, they believed in the Messiah way back then. So they know that, hey, God is going to do something here. The people who walk in darkness, in verse 2 again, will see a great light. Now, when you're seeing this, notice here, they're walking in darkness. Okay, just look at the language here. Okay, they're walking in darkness. They are, uh, they're groping around. They're stumbling. They're blind. They can't see right. And if you go back in your own lives and you think about, you know, especially if you're saved at an older time or when you're older in life, you know, you, there's no doubt, you know, you, you're going to see some transition and you're going to remember those days when you were walking in blindness and you were groping around and you had no hope in this world and you had no, no, I mean, really no reason to live outside of the things of this world, which are all going to be taken from you when you die anyway. So there's really, right. So everything's kind of, uh, without it's hopeless it really is it's hopeless and that's most that's everybody in the world right now really apart from christ there's no hope and if there is hope it's temporary it's just for this life only and so here you have a land that was in a very similar situation again think about the things going on witchcraft adultery greed false prophets those are the big things talked about in chapter 8 of isaiah well what what compels people to do those things you know what compels someone to go and and, and seek out a, a you know a witch or you know um, an astrologist, somebody like that. What compels somebody, right? Well, anxiety, fear, dread, something, a, a lack of peace for sure, right? You're, you're uncertain. You're, you're looking for answers outside of, of God. Think adultery, of course, same way. Greed, right? All of these things are earthbound. They're, they're driven by sin. And so these people are walking around in darkness. But notice in the very next part, it says... Um, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, not just any light, but a great light. And in the original language, that's really emphasized. It's, it's not just, it's a great light. It's almost, you know, it's kind of like, I, I guess if you, if you think about it, you're walking around in the dark one, one night. And I think the best illustration of this would be something like stadium lights, just all of a sudden, just boom, they just come on out of nowhere. You're like dazzled by them. Just, you know, just totally freaky out as you know, you walk in the boom. 
That's what this is saying. They're walking in darkness, and then boom, all of a sudden, there's a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Same thing. And in fact, you might have a, uh, in your translation there, it, it, it might even say deep darkness. And that's actually a, probably a better translation. It's not just darkness in the second part. Those who live in a dark land, it's deep darkness. It's, it's a darkness that's thick as ink. Think about in the plagues that God brings on, on uh, Pharaoh in the Old Testament, part of the 10 plague. And they say that the, the, the darkness was so thick, you couldn't, even, you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. That's how thick the darkness was. Now, this is spiritual, of course. It's not literal, but this is spiritual in the sense of this is a very severe darkness, and yet the light that dazzles them is even more astonishing than the dark that, that blinded them. And that's God's grace, right? I mean, it doesn't matter. That's the beauty of the gospel, right? Because it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've come out of. It doesn't matter what you... Like, you can think of the worst sin, the worst thing, the most monstrous, most hideous thing you've ever done in your life, Maybe you've never told anybody about it. And whatever that thing is, whatever that evil is, you know for a fact, because the, the word of God tells us that Christ can save you from that sin. His blood can wash away that sin so that God will never remember that sin. And you will be clean in the eyes of God today. So it doesn't matter. You know, that's the beauty of this is that it doesn't matter. Now, of course, to the flesh, that's like, oh, no, wait a minute. I want to do something to earn this. And the Bible says, no, you can't do anything to earn it. This is God's gift. It's the free gift of grace. There's nothing you can do to earn this gift. That's what makes it so splendid. If you realize how evil and how dark our hearts are and how dark our paths are apart from God's grace. So these people are walking around in this dark, this deep darkness a darkness that's as thick as ink. It's the pall of death, you know, death and darkness. There's always this, this, this parallel there. And so these people are, are in a really bad place. But in verse 3, there's, there's, there's this contrast between darkness and promise, darkness and light. Verse 3, you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So see this right here, okay? There's a, what he's saying here is this. There's going to be a new situation between God and his people. You see, if God doesn't reach down and do something about our sin, we're, we're cut off. We don't have any hope to be, no hope with God because of our sin. God is a holy God. His eyes are too pure to look upon evil. He has, God's nature hates evil. Like that's how his, his nature is by its very essence, one that hates evil hates injustice. And here we are as people who deserve his just condemnation. And so the only way that we can be spared that is by Christ taking on flesh and going to the cross and dying in our place by taking on our judgment. There's nothing we can do to earn this. And so that's why, notice it says this, they will be glad in your presence, right? It's not just, it's not just that they're glad. You know, you can be glad, but not about God. I mean, it's easy to be glad about things of the world. I mean, we all have those things even in our, our lives as Christians that we're glad about, that make us happy, that make that fill us with some kind of joy, right? But it's a whole other thing when it's saying, hey, the joy is because of your presence. The joy is because of you. The joy is in God. The gladness comes from God. Complete difference. And that's what's, that's what's going on here. They will be glad, not just with any gladness, not just with the world's gladness, but, but glad in, in God. And this is a, you know, when they use the two examples here of the gladness of harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So the reason there's two examples here, now this is, you know, especially in those contexts, I guess, unless you're agricultural or a farmer, um, 
I don't know if you if we can really appreciate the gladness of harvest. You know, harvest season comes around and there's this gladness whenever everything's brought in and you got all the crops there and everything's good to go and the rain came and everything came up and you're right, Eric, right? And there's a gladness there. There is, right? And especially in this context, they would have appreciated that, right? They know what that's so in other words, the point here is is think of the 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 epitome of gladness, the, the highest thing in your life that brings you gladness, that's the image that he's using here. Because for them, it would have been harvest season, and it would be the second one is men rejoice when they divide the spoil. They're talking about war there. After the battle's been, been won, after you're victorious, after, you know, you're, you're, you, the relief, I always think of the relief. You know, you read through the scripture, people have fought wars. I don't know. Um, you know, you go into battle, and I'm sure there's a lot of... Uh, there's, there's a lot of apprehension, I'm sure, going into it. But then afterwards, I'm sure there's this huge relief, especially if you win, of course, right? And so there's this division of the spoil. They're breaking it down. And so, in other words, this is a complete joy. That's why they give us these images. This is a complete joy. It's a complete satisfaction. Okay? And then 4, verse 4, it says 4 gives the reason for their rejoicing in verse 3. That's what 4 is there for. Why are they rejoicing? Why do they have this fullness of joy? For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. There's two images here or two um, references here. One's to Egypt. You see that here. For you shall break the yoke of their burden. Okay, this is a, this is a reference back to Egypt. It's more implicit. But the next one, of course, is at the battle of Midian. That's in the days of Gideon. Now, in both of those contexts, so so in, in the times of Moses, now uh, you read Exodus, you're seeing this, right? The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, and they have really no hope. Again, I mean, they, they are under a yoke. They're under a burden. They're having to make even more brick without their straw. Actually, now they got to go get their straw, things like that. And what does God do? God raises up Moses to go and deliver those guys out of slavery. And throughout scriptures, it's always referring back to that time, to that slavery. It always, the scriptures always point back to that as, as the greatest example of God coming in and delivering people from slavery, delivering people from oppression, delivering people from captivity. And the same thing happens with the next one with Midian. You know, in the, in the battle of Midian, or yeah, Midian or, or Gideon. Gideon was the, uh, was the judge that God raised up in Midian, or excuse me, Gideon was a man of very weak faith. He was not a very courageous man. Every time God told him to do something, Gideon's like, I don't know about that guy. You're going you're gonna to have to give me like a sign or, or do something here. I'm not doing that. And then God gives him a sign and Gideon's like, all right, all right. But I need something else though. That's not enough. And so God gives him something else. And then finally, God's like, okay. So at one point, Midian ha- or Gideon has 22,000 people to go into battle against the Midianites. But God says, Gideon, that's too many people. He says, tell everybody who's afraid to go home. And so, you know, like half go home. And then God's like, no, you know what, Gideon? That's too many people. We still have too many people. So now go down to the river and everybody who laps the water like a dog, they got to go home. Everybody who puts their face to it and, and, and does that, they can stay. And so they do that. You know, half are, half are eliminated. And God's like, yeah, no, you know what? That's still too many. And finally, he gets it down to 300 people. And the Midianite army is huge. And of course, here's Gideon, a very small guy who's scared to death already, and he's supposed to lead these people out. But then in the end, they don't even fight. What God says is he says, okay, get a trumpet in one hand and uh, get a basket with a lantern in the other. And whenever you blow the trumpets, drop the basket with the lantern in it and see what happens. And so these 300 guys, they go out to where the Midianites, and that's what they do. They blow the trumpet with the right hand and they throw the basket down with the lantern in in the other hand. 
and the Midianites start killing each other because they're confused. It's dark. They don't know what's going on. They're confused by the shouts, by all the, and so they just start killing each other. And God gives the victory. They don't even, you know, they don't even go into battle. And so the point is, is look, this is the God who still exists. The God who brought the Israelites out of Egypt, the God who delivered Gideon and those guys from the hands of the Midianites. This is the same God today. It's the same God. And it's the same God thousands of years later after Isaiah. We are serving the same God. We're worshiping the same God. That's the beauty of this. It's not like, hey, this is the God just for the Israelites. No, what the Bible teaches us is that in Christ, we belong to the Israelite community. We are Israelites, spiritual Israelites, by the fact that we believe in the Messiah. Just like the Israelites were called to do. Here we are. We believe in the Messiah. We're part of the same community. And we're part, what this is saying is that we serve the same God who delivered his, who's always delivered his people, always. And that's where the hope is, right? And so again, we haven't even reached the part about Christ here. Uh, Well, in a sense we have, but not explicitly, right? So you're seeing this. And so this is in verse five, by the way, in verse five, it says, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. You know what that means? The battle's over. Why would you have to roll your cloak and throw it into the fire and burn it up? Because you don't need it anymore. The cloak that they use for war, the, uh, the boots, you know, take your boots off, man. The booted warrior, take your boots off, throw them in the fire. You don't need them anymore. Why? Because the battle's won. The battle's, the battle's victorious. You've been, now how, how, and you're like, wait a minute, what battle? I didn't fight any battle, right? No, we didn't fight any battle. God fought the battle. God's victorious. And we're part of the spoil now. We're part of the, the ones who rejoice with God because the battle was won for us, in a sense, for our souls, uh, for our salvation. Now, and this is where finally in verse six, this is kind of where you, you get to the to the, uh, the the I guess the the reason for how this is going to be. How is this going to happen? So look what Isaiah does here. Isaiah is going. He's promising them something that he sounds like it's already happened, but he's throwing himself into the future. Right? How are we going to win this battle? Because in verse 6, a child will be born to us. Not a child is born or has been born or was born to us. A child will be born to us in the future. Later on in life, later on down the road, a child is going to be born to us. A son will be given to us. And of course, if you go through uh, scripture, you know, you have this all over the place Luke 2 11, Matthew, well, in a sense, we'll get to this in a minute. But Luke 2 11, the Christmas story, this, this same thing is, is, uh, um, repeat it for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders. You know, and that you say, well, the government of what? Well, think of Matthew 28 when Christ says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The authority, the government of everything, of all things, of stars and birds and bumblebees and churches, even the devil. God has authority over all of that. The good, the bad, the, uh, everything in life, God has authority over. That's what we've read here. And what are the decrees of God, right? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory, he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. How is that possible? Because he has the government of the entire universe on his shoulders. Now, you know, I, if you think about, now all of us, I'm sure, we've been in certain scenarios that seem overwhelming. You know, so whether it's at work, whether it's with people, relationships, we've all been in situations where you're in a situation, you're like, I, I feel like I'm just going to be crippled by this. It's too heavy. It's too much. It's too much to bear. Well, think of the entire universe on your shoulders. 
And Christ is going, Christ does it with ease. It's not a, it's not any problem for Christ. For us, you know, you put a little weight on our shoulders and we're going to, we're going to collapse with Christ. You can put everything on his shoulders and he's still perfectly fine. He's not even breathing hard. He's good. Right? So the government is put on his shoulders and then it has four names here. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Again, 600 years before Christ comes to earth. What are his names? Wonderful counselor. And we know this in the sense that Christ is the wisdom. He's the logos. You know, in the beginning was the word. Word means logos. Logos means wisdom. He is the eternal wisdom. Uh, Proverbs 8 talks about the wisdom that's at God's hand whenever God creates all things. A lot of people say, hey, that's Christ. Right? Christ is the ultimate, the epitome of wisdom. You know, remember when they went and they tried to arrest uh, Jesus? Remember the Pharisees and Sadducees sent guys to arrest him and they come back and, they're, and the guys are like, well, where is he? I thought you went to arrest him. They say, no one, no one speaks like that man speaks. They're like, we can't arrest this guy, man. Because they heard the guy and what he was saying and they're like, this guy, he's something else. Like, I don't even know what, like, I don't know who he is, but I don't want, I'm not even, I'm not going to mess with this. Why? Because he is, you know, to call him wise is to do him injustice because he's wisdom itself. So he's the eternal counselor. Not just a counselor, right? A wonderful counselor, eternal counselor, or excuse me, wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. There's a nice reference to Christ's deity. But notice he's a mighty God. You know, he's not just God. He's a mighty God. And that the implication there is that, you know, he's the God. If you remember when Joshua is about to lead the Israelites into the promised land, and they're going to go through there, and they're going to have all kinds of battles before them. And Christ is the one who appears to Joshua as the warrior of God, as the angel of God to lead his hosts into battle. That's Christ, right? Christ is a, he's a warrior king. He is in the sense of he is going to come after injustice. He's the judge. He's the judge of all the universe. And so he's a mighty God. He's the God who appeared to Moses in the bush. He led his people out of Egypt. He led the people in the time of Joshua. You know, when he comes to earth, even he's scorned. There's Gethsemane where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's sweating blood, but he says, you know what, I'm a, not my will be done, but your will be done. And so his entire existence has always been this one where, yes, even though people have been coming against him. Think of uh, when Eric preached on Psalm 2, right? That whole psalm is about people trying to come after God and destroy God and take out God. And God's up there laughing. He's like, no, why? Because he's going to send his anointed one, the, the, the son. You can't, you can't mess with the son because the son is going to be victorious. He's the everlasting father. Now, that might throw you, right? Because you're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. All right. So I get what you're saying, man. This is Christ. But now Christ isn't the father. That's heresy. And you're right. Christ is not the father. Christ is the son. But this is the, in the sense of think of the same way like um, in Hebrews, it talks about how Christ is our brother. So this is more like the paternal relationship that Christ has towards his people. It is a fatherly relationship, right? That's not the typical word we use for Christ, but he does have a fatherly care for his people, just like he has a brotherly care for his people. Just like Paul over here in Thessalonians says, I, I cared for you like a mother. Well, Paul's nobody's mother. He's Paul, right? But he's saying in the context of our relationship, there was this thing, I was a mother to you. I was a brother to you. Christ is a father to us in the sense of his paternal care. He's tender towards us and he disciplines us, right? Whenever his children go astray, like a good father, he comes in and he chastises us. He disciplines us. He gets us back on path and he's everlasting father, not just the one who he doesn't have an existence. You know, the, the beauty of the incarnation when Christ comes to earth, 
and we celebrate it at Christmas, is that the Son of God, who is spirit, takes on flesh, takes on something that he has never taken on before, ever, which is human flesh. And then lastly, the Prince of Peace. And I think this is the one we're probably most aware of. You know, and this is just uh, in the context of the New Testament. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Prince of Peace gives us peace with God because when he goes to the cross, he lost the peace that he had with God on the cross. So this son of God, who's always had perfect peace with the father, when he goes to the cross, when he takes on our sin, he's judged in our place because of our sin. So he loses the peace, the relationship that he had with God at that moment. In the sense of he had, now. In the, but the father was always pleased with the son. But in the sense of, Christ always having this, this, uh, this perfect harmony with the Father. Whenever he takes on our sins and the Father crushes him, he does that so that we who have been disconnected from God can now be brought into God, brought back to God, excuse me, right? We can be brought back to God. We can have peace with God. How? Because Christ died for our sins. So he reconciles us to the Father and through the Holy Spirit. You know, we have, we have, peace in an experiential sense, you know, as Christians. We have peace with God. How? Because of right now in time, I have peace with God, yes, but I also have the peace of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean you walk around like a monk necessarily, and you're always like in this tranquilized bliss, you know, where you just got to like, everything's cool, everything. No, but it's to say, yeah, are you going to have troubles in life? Yes. Are things going to disturb you in life? Yes. Are, are things going to bring care in your life? Yes. Worry? Yes. Right? That means those are, those things that we know though here, we know, what does it say in the Bible? It says, cast your cares upon the Lord, for he cares about you. Cast your anxieties upon the Lord, for he cares about you. Remember, Christ says, fear not, little flock. My father cares about sparrows. He cares way more about you. He's going to take care of you. Fear not. Why is he going to take care of us? Because of Christ. So he's the prince of peace. He sends us the Holy Spirit, who is the comforter. And then verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Look, if you think about, and and I forgive me, I've said this several times maybe, but look, we're in New Mexico in a different continent, speaking a different language. We look different. Everything about us is different from people of the days of Jesus in the Middle East. They spoke different language. They ate different food, everything else, right? But we're over here across the ocean talking about the same Christ. 2,000 years ago, that would have been an impossibility in the eyes of most people. They would have said, yeah, right, that Christianity is going to spread and conquer and go into the western parts and and now into the eastern parts, into the Orient, everything else, into Africa, India, and absolutely conquer those cultures and bring those cultures into submission, not in the sense of like the Islam submission where they're going with a sword. Through the gospel, people are being brought into the faith. And what happens when when they're brought into the faith? They're subdued. They're tamed. They go from being a lion to a lamb, right? That's how. That's what the gospel does. That's what the gospel has always done. That's why it's saying there will be no increase to uh, no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Wherever his government goes, peace goes with it. Wherever his government leaves, like let's say United States, right? His government, his the stronghold of of the gospel. God's spirit, however you want to put it, it begins to depart from a place. And what happens? No more peace. Right? There's no more peace in the land. Why? 
because the gospel had a subduing effect. It had a restraining effect. And whenever that leaves, there's chaos, there's tumult. But wherever it goes, peace is brought back. It's amazing, right? It's right here. And there will be no end to this. Now, notice it says, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So again, Isaiah is saying from then on, from when? From the time that Christ comes, remember what we read in Matthew where Christ says the kingdom of God is at hand, right? From that time on, forevermore, right? And now again, you're looking at America and you're saying it doesn't seem like this is increasing in America. No, but look at the big picture of things, right? Look on the big big scheme of things. The gospel is still spreading. People are still being converted. Revivals are still happening across the world. And over time, you know, hopefully we pray that America will be brought back. Right, bring, bring, And that's why, by God's grace, the purpose of this church is here, to help take a stand for Christ, to get the gospel out, to see people saved, to see people discipled. And in doing so, you know, you have a lot of solid, good churches, good Christians, you know, people who are zealous for the Lord, like it says right here, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And what's that going to produce, right? That's going to produce a tidal wave effect of gospel saturation wherever these churches are, wherever these people are, wherever we are. You know, it took 11 disciples in the old days to go out and overturn the world. We have more than 11 right here, easily, right? And so here here we have this, though. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You know, you can be zealous as an athlete. You can be zealous about winning something and still lose, right? You can be zealous. I mean, how many many examples are are there of this? You know, you can be zealous... I think I had some examples here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, or even, look, you can be, you, you take the guy like entrepreneurs, right? Entrepreneurs are very zealous. Um, I don't know. I mean, and that's good, right? And, and, and praise God for entrepreneurs. But the, the, the entrepreneur, it doesn't matter who they are, right? There's still the prospect of death around every corner. So you can sell out, you, whatever it is. It? it could be entrepreneurship. It could be, uh, it could be athletics. You know, it could be your work. It could be your children, whatever it is. You can be zealous to be a really good parent, which is good. That's, that's a good thing. Zealous to be a good husband, a good, uh, a good wife. And guess what? We still mess up, first of all. We still don't do it right. We still are, you know, make mistakes as parents and as, as husbands and wives and at work and all these things. And, you know, if you're in sports or whatever, right? We still make mistakes all the time. But what this is saying is when it says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this, you know what that means? You're talking about a God who is omnipotent, a God who will not fail, a God who can't fail, a God who is all powerful, a God who has all wisdom, a God who is everywhere, a God who you can't come up against and actually win. You can't do it. And so this is what this is saying is this is saying, look, this is a promise that this will happen. And now, by God's grace, living on this side of the cross, we see that this did happen and is happening. It's still going on. People are still being converted. The fact that we're all here today, by God's grace, we're in Christ. That is, we're walking testimonies to this right here today. And that's what, you know, excuse me for the cliche, but that's what Christmas should be about, right? That's what this is all about. That Christ took on flesh, not just to be in a manger, not just to come to earth and say things. He came to earth to conquer. To conquer what? To conquer, first of all, death and our sin. That's what he came to conquer. How did he do it? By taking on our sin, by dying in our place. And then though he died, he was raised from the dead. 
So that's the beauty of all of this. And of course, the, the great mystery is, is how can God take on flesh? And, you know, we, I don't know, right? Of course not. I'm not God. And you and I, we're not God. But how do we, we know that it happened. We know that it's in scripture. We know that it's possible, like we read from um, Bob Inc. last week, the God who created all things can interact with his creation. He's the one that made it. He takes on flesh. He's the one that made us. He can take on flesh. He can do that. And he did it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, you know, to close, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll come to the Lord's Supper. To close is, is, is this. Look, you know, whatever darkness you have in your life, and we all have certain moments or certain things, maybe a lot of things, you know, whatever's going on, here's the hope right here. You know, so often in life, and if you have friends, I mean, whoever, right? Doesn't it? Maybe it's not you. Maybe you're like, hey, I'm, I'm pretty good right now. Um, but there'll be a time when you're not, right? And we know that. But here's the hope. You know, so many times in the world, it's like, hey, I'm going to go to this over here. I'm going to go to the, to the bottle, to the to entertainment, to, to work, you know, just be a workaholic, whatever it is. Well, the problem with that is that at the end of the day, you don't have anything like this. You don't have any hope there because that is going to terminate. That can't satisfy you. That's going to end, whatever it is. It could be your children even, right? I mean, it's amazing. You know, you have a kid and you're like, man, I don't know how I love this kid so much. It's crazy. Like your kids. It's I, I, but then at the same time, you're thinking, but that's not everything. Right? There's something else here. There's something else here. If you take my kids, if you take my health, if you take everything in life, am I going to be okay? By God's grace alone, right? By God's grace, yes. Why? Because you can't take my God from me. You can't take the hope that I have in Christ from me. You can't take the peace and the joy in Jesus Christ. That's in Jesus Christ. You can't do that. So you can take it all, you know. And if you're in Christ, you're going to be okay. Of course, it'll hurt, but you're going to be fine overall. Because you have what you were made to have, which is Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about. The Christ, the zeal of the Lord of hosts. He says, will accomplish this. We can say he has accomplished this. And that is what Christmas is about. So let's pray, and then we'll go to the Lord's table. Father, we praise you today for, for Christ. We praise you, Lord. Words can't, can't ever do you justice, Lord. Words can't, can't do it. The tongues of a thousand angels couldn't, couldn't do you justice for the grace that you've given us in Christ, the mystery, the power of the gospel, the majesty of it, the wisdom of it, Lord. And here we are, simple people. Lord, we, we, are, we are simple people, very finite, very limited in our knowledge and in our understanding of anything, Lord. And yet here we are, and we, we, know, we know things because you've revealed them to us, both by your word and by the Holy Spirit. And so we praise you today for Christ. We praise you for your grace and the gospel. And Father, we pray that you would help us to honor you this season. Thank you that, that Christmas does give us a time to get together with family and 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 others, Lord, and, and maybe get some rest from work. But Lord, we pray that you'd give us grace to keep our eyes on Christ and that we would that we would be amazed and in awe, not just in the, the cliche and trite and superficial kind of way, but, but Lord, in a sincere way, that we would truly be knocked over by the things of Christ. And Lord, we need your help in this. We, we're, we're prone to be, uh, to be dry spiritually. And, and Father, we pray that you would help us to cling to you, to turn from this world. Lord, help us to be lights in the midst of darkness. And Lord, we pray that you would help us now as we go to your table, that, we would give, that you would give us grace to draw near to you as you draw near to us. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.